Last Sunday, we completed our series on fear, having examined how we are to be followers of Jesus in a culture of fear. One of the matters that came up was that community is important. I don't know that there are many who would challenge this assertion, they would say that this is wrong. And yet we need to recognize, and we talked about this in the series, that for all the claims of, of the importance of community and the professed desire for a sense of community, we live in an age and culture in which the individual or individual achievement is what is prized more than anything else. But I would argue that community is important. And just by way of review and transitioning into what we will look at today, um, I want to mention three realities about community that we saw in our study of fear. The first is, if we are to recover courageous living, we need to have the kind of community that is capable of supporting it. So to recover courage in a culture of fear, we need to recover a community that will support it, that is capable of supporting it. As we saw, courage is a capacity to do what is right and good in the face of fear. But the question comes up, how do we know that we're doing the right thing? How do we know that what we're doing is wise and is not foolish? Maybe we're just being reckless. This is where the community, the church, the Christian community comes in. It provides a place where we can talk about these things and make judgments together. So that we don't need to rely on our own personal judgments alone. We have brothers and sisters. We have a community in which these things can be worked out. If we are to be courageous, then we need, our fears need to be shaped in the right way or rightly formed. As I said in the series, we should have the right amount of fear. Not too little, because then we might be reckless about certain things, and not too much, because then we might be paralyzed and end up doing nothing at all. It is in the church that we are to talk about these things, that we are to share these things, we are to share risks together, and we are to share resources. The second thing that we saw, and we saw this last Sunday at the end of the series, ironically, as important as community is, you know, a place where we can share with others, where we can share our fears, we can pool our resources, and we can sustain our courage, the community may, in fact, in a culture of fear, become an idol. It can become something in which we seek safety. Because as we've seen in a culture of fear, the thing that people prize the most is safety and security, and suddenly that's what the church can become. So, where it is supposed to help us stand in a culture of fear, it may in fact sort of feed into that culture of fear by it being a place where we feel secure and, and we like things just the way that we are. We're comfortable with each other, but whenever somebody new comes in, we're not quite so comfortable and we're wondering how this is going to affect the dynamic and so on. As one writer put it, and I quoted this last week, strangers are unsafety incarnate, and so they embody the insecurity that haunts your life. In a fearful world, where community means security, hospitality is no longer prized as a virtue, because risk is involved. We looked at this last week. If we allow people to be members without keeping the rules, what is going to happen? What is our community going to look like? And how do we keep, uh, how are we going to keep our sense of identity? If in fact we allow other people in, then the boundaries, the borders might become a bit fuzzy. 
who's in and who's out may not be as clear as black and white as we might prefer. In fact, the borders of the boundaries may always be in the process of being redrawn. And the identity of the community may not be as black and white as some might prefer. If we are to be people marked by hospitality, this means that we are to welcome people into something, into your home or into the congregation, into the community, but you are welcoming someone into something. But that something is always in process, and when someone new comes in, then it changes a bit, and that's fine. But it's risky. And that's why I think in a culture of fear, people would prefer not to have anything new. I like things the way they are. Don't bring anybody new in because they'll sort of mess up things up. But if we are to be the people of God and marked by courage, we are to be marked by hospitality as well. The third thing, um, and this is tied to what we just looked at, community is the key to hospitality, in my opinion. In a culture such as ours, that commends suspicion of the stranger as a patriotic act. A place in which the community may be a place of safety against non-members, how do we develop the virtue of hospitality? I mentioned last week we can find guidance in three sources in scripture. The first is the early church. The story of the church is found in the book of Acts, and it begins in Jerusalem as a purely Jewish group. And then as time goes on, because of persecution, uh, Philip goes to the Samaritans, he speaks to the Ethiopian eunuch, uh, Peter has a vision and speaks to Cornelius, who is a Roman centurion, and then the people who go up to Antioch and Syria begin to preach to the Greeks, and slowly but surely, the church moves from being a purely Jewish phenomenon to something that is both Jewish and Gentile. And again, I think for, for most of us who are Gentiles, we don't understand the implications of that. Um, the difference between Jews and Gentiles in the ancient world was so stark, was so uh, clear, that to allow a Gentile to come into a congregation of Jews was, was just unthinkable. In fact, when Peter goes to Cornelius' house, he says, you all know that in, you know, among Jews, we don't do this. This is against our custom." We don't go into the houses of Gentiles. And now you're saying, no, it's not a matter of coming into the house. We want you to come into the church and be a part of the congregation. This wasn't an easy process. Acts 15 deals with the first church council. And the issue was, are we going to let these people in the way they are? Or are they going to have to become like us, become Jews, and then they can be a part of the church? The second thing where we find guidance is Paul's description of the church as the body of Christ. One body with many members. And so, as a congregation, we would say we are the body of Christ, and if somebody new comes in, we can't say, well, you're not like us, therefore you can't fit into who we are. Um, no, because you have eyes, you have ears, you have feet, you have hands, we have different parts, and people are different, and that... I think should open us up to hospitality to those who are quite different from us. Or perhaps even exactly like us, but we're like, hey, we already have me, and we don't need another one like me. You go someplace else. And then the third thing, and this is where we ended the series, and that is the pattern of the three-in-one life of the God who is Trinity. 
Father and Son and Spirit. Different and yet the same. The three members of the Trinity do not exist in isolation from each other. That's why in, uh, in the ancient church, as they tried to draw paintings of, of the Trinity, you have three different men, uh, and they're, they're sort of apart. And yet, I mean, it's very hard for us to get our minds around the Trinity, but in fact, what you find in Trinity is mutual indwelling. It isn't the Father's over here, and the Son's over here, and the Spirit's over here, and they all have their sphere of influence. But there is, in fact, a mutual indwelling, a radical equality. I'm convinced that this is what we, as the people of God, are supposed to demonstrate in our life. We are to reflect in a conscious way the reality, the nature of the triune God. One writer put it this way, The church is the primary presence of God in the world. As we pay attention to what it means to be the church, we create an alternative community to the society of the world. This new community, the embodied experience of God's kingdom, will draw people into itself and nurture them in the faith. In this sense, the church and its life in the world will become the new apologetic. We're so busy trying to convince people by arguments to become Christians when in fact we should be reflecting the life of God in the life of our congregation. Well, all of these issues, at least for me, serve to raise a host of questions. What is involved in community? What defines a community? What is required of a community? What is the place of geography in a community? And I must tell you that these are not abstract or theoretical matters for me. For decades now, and I have in my notes, does it seem possible, I have struggled with the nature of our congregation as we all live so far apart. Is it possible for us to develop community and a sense of community in our present circumstances? In our culture, people, and that includes us, tend to use the language of psychology and therapy for interpreting interpersonal relationships and influence and you know, difficulties. Uh, that Even in the church, this sort of uh, psychological language has come, therapeutic language has come in. So as that's how we describe community or our relationship to one another. People turn to management models and to business language when we need to figure out how we are to make institutions or relationships work. And while these may be helpful, I do not believe that they are adequate for the challenges of building communities. What I would like to do for the next few weeks, the Lord willing, as we gather to worship the triune God, is to see, examine what is, is necessary, what is necessary for the community, for us as the people of God here at the church on Melrose. What is it that we are supposed to be doing as the people of God? What we will be looking at and considering is the practices that are necessary for building and strengthening community. One could make the case, I think quite easily, that every human community has practices that hold it together. Whether this is friendships, uh, personal relationships, families, neighborhoods, you know, blocks, block parties, and things that people do. This is just the way we are as human beings. We have practices and these are sort of the glue that, that hold us together. 
we as the people of God are not any different in that practices in fact are to hold us together but our practices are to be understood as responses to the grace that we have been given in the person of Jesus Christ in light of the word and work of God for the sake of one another and for the sake of the world we are to be engaged in these practices but how are we to understand the word practices I don't know if you recall but in the prayer of confession uh, at the end we ask that these things these sins and these practices would be taken from us what do we understand when we say practice I think it would be helpful for us to think in terms of practical theology after all practices and practical come from the same root but theology practices yes but practical theology in practical theology practice and theology come together and they do so in an attempt to describe and to re-describe the world so that the practices of Christians can remain true to the practices of God into and for the world thus for us as God's people practices relate to the forms of divinely inspired action individual as well as communal which are rooted in the Christian belief about the world you see because we believe certain things about the world that this is creation then we are supposed to live in a particular way it should flow if this is creation and we are creatures and God is the creator then that should sort of put into motion certain activities we are to see the world and act in the world as God does there is to be a connection a conscious connection between this is how God is and this is how we are supposed to act in his creation simply put Christian practices are embodied theology if you say theology people immediately I do think books discussions arguments people thinking about theology well Christian practice is in fact not theology in books it is living it out in our lives in our bodies by the way embodied theology and this theology can be interpreted it can be read it can be understood in the same way in a very similar way to the way we read theological textbooks but if you understand what I just said it should make you very uncomfortable because we are much more comfortable with the notion that this is what I believe ask me what I believe I'll tell you what I believe as opposed to someone saying oh I know what you believe by how you act and we're like no 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 I just, we would rather speak what we believe than we would live what we believe we think that theology and doctrine and belief is primarily if not exclusively intellectual or mental and it might or might not have a connection to how we act that's not the way it works in fact the way that we act is a reflection of what we truly believe I've mentioned this a number of times before but I 
I was struck by it. Uh, I think Dave was there. I think Rosa and Gia were as well when we were up at Hollywood Presbyterian Church. We were there for a series of lectures. And the, the man speaking said that uh, Newsweek, I think Newsweek or Time, had done a telephone uh, poll. They had phoned people to ask them about vegetarianism. And they found that in this poll that 60% of the people who said they were vegetarian Get this, 60% of the people who said they were vegetarian said that they had eaten meat in the previous 24 hours. Well, then you're not a vegetarian. Well, I think you could take a telephone poll with Christians and ask them, what do you believe? And then they would turn around and confess that in the past 24 hours they have not acted consistent with what they say they believe. So our practices are to be practical theology. This should be what we believe put into action. But because we don't think that way, whenever I say things like practices, then immediately people think, oh, duties, obligations, things I ought to do. Like, oh, these are the things I have to do. As opposed to, no, this is actually an outworking of what should be of what you believe. If we see practices primarily as duties, then they seem to be burdensome. And they seem to be something that does not give life, but if anything, sucks the joy of what, out of whatever life you may have. But if what I quoted earlier is true, if the church is the primary presence of God's activity in the world, then our practices are to be the natural extension of our beliefs and our theology. One writer put it this way, when we pay attention to practices, we are likely to notice the significance and beauty in small acts of grace and truth. As Christians, we have a framework for talking about what is good and what is beautiful and what is holy. Practices, I think, are important from ta for taking us beyond talk to this is actually what is true and this is what is holy and this is what is beautiful. In our culture, technique seems to reign supreme. And so when it comes to the matter of community, if I were to say to you, as a community we are to have certain practices, people begin to get uncomfortable because you're, you're putting burdens on people, you're putting obligations on them. Rather we should we should develop certain techniques that will help us to build a better sense of community. Uh, Christine Pohl, in, in writing her book on, on this, I'll mention her again later, said that she found that whenever Christians talked about community, it usually came up in one particular context, and that was a weekend retreat. So for two or three days, we'll be a community, and then we're going to go home. Because the idea of sustained practices day after day after day Seems, seems a bit much. But in fact, if we say we believe certain things, it should be seen in how we act. So where do we start? What practice should be the beginning point? Well, here I follow the lead of Christine Pohl in her book, Living into Community, Cultivating Practices That Sustain Us. And she begins, interestingly enough, and I will follow her lead, with the practice of gratitude. 
as she puts it, embracing gratitude as a way of life. She writes this, If we really understand our lives as redeemed by costly grace, then our primary response can only be gratitude. It's at the center of the Christian life. A well-known theologian put it this way, Grace and gratitude belong together like heaven and earth. Gratitude follows grace like thunder follows lightning. If, in fact, the essence of God is grace, then the essence of human beings as God's people is to be gratitude. If you're interested in words and where they come from, it is worth noting that the word gratitude comes from the Latin word gratia, which means grace or graciousness. Actually, I think I'll have to check with Henry. I think the correct pronunciation is gratia, G-R-A-T-I-A. Interestingly enough, in Greek it's the same way. The word for grace is charis, and thankfulness or thanksgiving or gratitude is eucharistia, from which we get eucharist. If grace and gratitude are central and belong together, then why are they not more prominent in the way we live? I think in part because when we think of gratitude, we tend to think of it as an individual practice. So much has been written about gratitude in the Christian tradition, and it certainly is found throughout Scripture. Um, Certain things come to mind. Uh, Martin Luther says, nothing ages so quickly as gratitude. Uh, C.S. Lewis, um, the definition of a human is the ungrateful biped. So much has been written about gratitude in the Christian tradition. Let me read to you something from a devotional. A thankful life is a response to seeing life as a gift from God and realizing that our lives belong to God. God is the giver. We are thanks givers. To be grateful is to recognize the love of God in everything he has done or he has given us. And he has given us everything. Every breath we draw is a gift of his love. Every moment of existence is a grace. For it begins with it or brings with it immense graces from him. Gratitude, therefore, takes nothing for granted, is never unresponsive, is constantly awakening to new wonder and to praise of the goodness of God. For the grateful person knows that God is good, not by hearsay, but by experience. And that is what makes all the difference. Wonderful stuff, and and true, every word of it. I think even non-believers would admit that being thankful is important to the well-being of the individual. Psychologists proclaim its importance for our health and our happiness. It's good to be thankful. We see it in our text as well, in Ephesians chapter 5, if you look at verse number 20. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. But, I think we make a big mistake in that we tend to overlook the importance of gratitude as a practice for community life. We tend to think of it as very individual. I'm a grateful person. I am grateful for these things. When in fact it should be something that marks the life of the church and of the community. In fact, if you look at our text more closely in Ephesians chapter 5, you might see that what Paul, when Paul writes about giving thanks, it's in a communal context. 
If you go back up a few verses, instead be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with songs, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think we really struggle to see gratitude beyond ourselves, that, that it is something that is to mark a group of people. Let me see if I can help, get, help us get around that. I think it becomes more clear to us that it should be a communal practice if we think of its opposite, that is, ingratitude. Think for a moment of what ingratitude can do to relationships, to communities, to families, to the workplace, to organizations. If you wonder what the practice of gratitude can do for a community, then stop and think what ingratitude and everything that comes with it, complaining and so on down the line, can do to a community. In both gratitude and ingratitude, what we see is they're closely tied to what we notice. Ingratitude focuses on the mistakes, the flaws, which, by the way, are always going to be there because we are human beings. And in the context of a community, disappointment, which I think also will always be there because we are human beings. When we yearn for some ideal relationship or ideal church or community, it is easy to grow increasingly dissatisfied with what we have. Like I said, we could say the same thing for relationships. When we yearn for some type of ideal, um, it is easy to be dissatisfied and not to be thankful for what we have. On the other hand, if instead of ingratitude we practice gratitude, we are more likely to notice the goodness and the beauty in everyday things then we are content. We feel blessed. And we are eager to bestow or pronounce blessing on others. We are able to delight in the very existence of another human being. In a grateful community, individuals and their contributions are acknowledged and honored. And they are regular testimony, I think, to God's faithfulness through which we as the community of faith, the church, can experience the joys of one another. Expressions of gratitude make us, as God's people, alive to the word, alive to the spirit, and alive to God's work among us. As one writer put it, such a community, that is one that practices gratitude, is a beautiful land whose culture is grace and, in who, and whose inhabitancy life as a gift. In this land, we often find abundant forgiveness and frequent celebrations. Christine Paul, in her book, uh, speaks of a particular situation. There was a Christian community that was, they were having a lot of problems. They weren't getting along with one another. And they sought outside advice. And this person gave them some very sage advice. He said, the truth is, we can't stand the idea of not fixing each other. But insofar as we can fix people at all, we can only do it by forgiving them. 
and giving them grace and leaving them to our loving Father. You see, when we more fully understand the grace we have been given, we are able to turn outward in gratitude and generosity toward others. Gratitude becomes our home in the presence of God. Henry Nouwen wrote that gratitude is an ultimate participation in the divine life itself that reaches out far beyond our own self to God, to all creation, to the people who gave us life, love, and care. So where do we begin this practice? How do we develop this practice? Well, I would say that we begin right here where we are right now, in worship. The heart of worship is gratitude in community. And now we go to our second text in Psalm 100, if you want to turn there. In the book of Psalms, worshipers are frequently invited to enter God's presence with praise and thanksgiving. This is at the heart of worship. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Remembering God's goodness and his acts on behalf of the community was at the center of worship in the Old Testament. When we gather to worship, we remember what Jesus has done, what he has given to us in giving us salvation. We should be drawn, in fact, into a heart of worship and a heart of gratitude. Costly sacrifice and gratitude are profoundly intertwined in something which we have had earlier in our worship, and that is the Lord's Supper. And not simply just the practice of it. Do you remember some of what I read earlier before communion? The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said. So even in the, in the practice of establishing what we now know as the Eucharist or communion, we have Jesus giving thanks. Can we do any less? When we practice, when we have communion, it is a small expression of gratitude which is joined to the gift of Jesus Christ himself. But, you might say, Damon, that's all well and good, but we can't live here. We can't be here every day of the week. We have to go out to our homes, to our neighborhoods, to our schools, to our jobs, what are we to do? It is worth noting that as Paul wrote to churches about how they were to live out their identity as God's people, a beloved and holy people, how they were to live well together in community, he encouraged them to be thankful. I don't know if you still have your finger in Ephesians chapter 5, but if you go back to the beginning of the chapter, verses 3 and 4, 
But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. In other words, this is, this is how you're supposed to live. Do not do these practices. This is how you're supposed to live. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse jesting, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. So as Paul writes to the Ephesians about what it means to live a godly life, he speaks of thanksgiving. And then in Colossians chapter 3, verse 15, Let the peace of Christ reign, uh, rule in your heart, since as members of one body you were called to peace. Period. And be thankful. Gratitude to God will lead to love for others. I hope to come back to this in the, in the future, in the weeks to come. What does it mean to be grateful? If we imagine that it means that we always have to be smiling and cheerful, even in the face of injustice, suffering, and tragedy, then we, first of all, would be mistaken, and secondly, quite miserable. Christian Paul writes, To live gratefully is not the same as denying the misery or evil around us. Gratitude involves knowing that we are held secure by a loving God and that the God we worship is trustworthy despite the nearly unbearable sorrow that we might encounter along the way. A capacity to be thankful in the midst of hard times requires acknowledging that we do not know the whole story. Gratitude is a crucial way in which death and destruction do not have the final word and cannot finally define us. Gratitude is most striking when it is lived out in difficult circumstances. I think one thing we need to admit, and I talked about this when we went through the theology of food, but I don't know that it's penetrated. We do not live in a society for which gratitude is a virtue. Okay? Um, You see, when you say thank you to someone, that means they have done something for you. That means that you are not able to stand on your own. You need somebody else to be there with you. And again, we are very individualistic and we would rather stand alone. I think in our age, we as God's people find it more difficult to be grateful than perhaps our brothers and sisters and the generations before us. We live in an age of entitlement in which a significant uh, portion of our economy goes to what are known as entitlements. But it has serious moral consequences. One writer wrote this, No gift can bring joy to the one who has a right to everything. It can't be a gift because I'm entitled to it. And I don't have to say thank you because I'm entitled to it. We live in a relatively good economy with relative security where we can assume that there will be adequate resources for good work and personal fulfillment. Life is good. As a result, we come to imagine that that's the way it should be, that we are entitled to this. It's quite different from what many around the world today and certainly those who came before us experienced. Others have recognized that loss setbacks and risks were part of life. 
in our society, we tend to get dissatisfied if things don't go our way. In part because we are consumers and the customer is always right and we have a sense of entitlement. And so we are not grateful. Our understanding of fulfillment in our culture is also tied very much to individual achievement. This means the idea of community does not play in, or grace. Either something from God, a gift from God, or a gift from the community. No, uh, I did this. Um, Tom and I have spoken about this a number of times. Uh, the most popular funeral song in America, I don't know if you know this, is I did it my way. And so it's very much a sense that it's me. It's me. I did this. And when you say, listen, you're, you're part of something much larger and you need these people. Oh, and by the way, God, God's grace. Um, in the last, uh, before the Oscars, the Golden Globes, just the whole season of... Uh, giving of awards, uh, there was a newspaper article about the fact that I think it was uh, fine, one of the brothers was thanked more often than God. And people said, mm, that's, that's a shift. Usually people say, I want to thank God, but no. I want to thank uh, Feinstein. Is it the, he's, he's the one who made this possible for me. And even then, there's a sense of, well, there is somebody out there who helped me. In our culture, we want to say, I did this myself. Gratitude is an uncomfortable reminder that we need other people and that our lives are dependent upon their gifts and their generosity. And so we are not grateful. I also think that in a culture in which our lives are packed with busyness and responsibilities, Gratitude and certainly wonder, a sense of wonder at God's creation are squeezed out. There's simply no room. There's no time for us to sit down and notice what we have been given. It may be that our busyness is tied to the notion that what we have is not a gift. It's not a gift. It's just that's the way life is. Finding time to be thankful to God and to others, it seems a nice touch. I like it when people say thank you. Instead of saying, no, in fact, you should be grateful because you do not exist on your own. In 2 Thessalonians 5, Paul wrote, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. As a community, as a church, as the church on Melrose, gratitude is to be the practice our practice, a living out of the reality of God's life in us. We are to have a practice and a posture of gratitude, which is to be a beautiful witness to the transforming power of God's grace. God has shown us his grace, and we should in turn respond as a congregation, not merely as individuals, but as a congregation with gratitude. And as we are grateful it then begins to build and to strengthen our sense of community, what it means to be the people of God here at the Church on Melrose. The Lord willing, we will continue this discussion next Sunday. Let's pray together.
Indeed, our Father, we have so much to be thankful for. How gracious you have been to each one of us, but also to us as a congregation. Your profound faithfulness, I think, is more than we can comprehend. As your people in this place, we want to do the things that we are called to do. If we are, in fact, to be the presence of your activity in the world, we want to have the right practices, the right habits, not only as individuals, but as a congregation that will demonstrate who you are to those around us. May we think on these things in the days to come. The practice of gratitude. I thank you that we could gather today to worship you and in our worship practice gratitude for all that you have done for us. We do pray for Stephen who will be playing this afternoon that you would watch over him as he plays. The time that we will spend together in eating, we ask your blessing on our time and on the food May it be a time of sharing joys. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.